This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with people who see possibilities that compel them to go against the status quo, but who sometimes struggle to do so because of the noise and norms of the world. I call them Sensitive Rebels, and we'll discuss the challenges, successes, and lessons from their journeys as they keep moving forward in their quest to make a difference in the world. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Sam Mazio of Better. And Better is a law firm that, well, they're different from any law firm I've ever encountered or heard of. Now, after my career dreams of being a chemist or a writer got kind of blown up by my first year of college, I then changed to the idea of becoming an attorney. I'd taken a products liability course, thought it was really super interesting, really liked the idea of law and justice and all of that. But then I spent a week working in a law firm the following summer, and it was like, no, this environment is not a fit for me at all. Later in my IT career, I actually supported a couple of law firms, and that further cemented that concept. I was like really glad that I had decided not to go to law school and not to do that because I was like, this never would have worked for me. But you know, if I'd encountered a firm like Better and somebody like Sam, I probably would have had a really, really different idea about what law was, about attorneys, and about what would be possible. And that's part of why I wanted to have him on. His his story, it's really interesting one to see his journey and how he really was on a track he didn't like but corrected course. And it really shows us all what's possible when we're willing to step outside the box and really focus on what are our values, what really matters to us, how do we want to work? How do we want to do business? And then coming up with a plan for taking action that's in alignment with that. And so as you listen to my conversation with him, I really want you to be thinking about how you might be able to find a better approach to what you're doing, to the business that you're connected to, and see if it helps to get you some different ideas about how you might shake things up and find a better and different way to do things. And now here's our conversation. How are you doing today, Sam? I am doing quite well, and I appreciate that. We always get that sort of nod that we're different than most attorneys, and it's not just for the sake of being different. It's just the way we think it should be done. So I'm going to I'm gonna frame this a little bit more for those who are listening and cannot see, because uh, we also we have a, a special guest of sorts. Over Sam's right shoulder, there is a cutout of Bernie Sanders, um, his famous sitting in a chair uh, masked pose that has literally been all over the world. It is also in Sam's office. Looks pretty much life-size sitting there in the background, but also over his left shoulder, he's got hanging on the wall, he's got a print that says people over profit. So this will give you a sense, I think, of of who Sam is. And I'm really looking forward to being able to chat with him about law and uh, doing law a little bit differently. But Sam, where I want to start is, uh, as usual, with this question of what are you rebelling against? What am I rebelling against? I think the list is long when you get to the legal profession. So I'll kind of run through a few of those. But I think I'd also like to speak to sort of what I'm rebelling against just as a human, because I think that informs my legal practice as well. But as far as the legal profession goes, there's a lot of different things that when I started my first legal practice with my previous business partner that we just questioned and asked why. And I think that's an important thing to do in any aspect, any career, anything that you're doing. And with the legal profession, a lot of the things that we asked why about So for instance, the every seven tenths of a minute billing, the billable hours requirement on an annual basis, the upfront retainers, the image of it, the three-piece suit corner office bullshit that you see everywhere. And sometimes there's different legal sort of areas that you need that in 
criminal defense and in civil litigation, and there needs to be that high-powered image. But for us, you know, we're helping people start their nonprofits and their businesses and file their trademarks and hire people and treat them well and deal with their performance management and really just sort of proactively keep people in compliance. And so for us, we can have a short sleeve on, we can wear a pair of shorts, you know, when we meet with a client. And so with that, we just sort of looked at a lot of those things and decided to rebel against them. And we bill hourly, we bill at the end of the month after we finish up something for a client, which is the honor system. And sure, we've been stiffed on a few invoices here and there, but we'd rather do it that way and take the chance on not receiving that payment versus being that stigmatized money up front, the money that is there for you to be doing your work. And then we try not to bill for communication as much as possible. We try to leverage technology as much as possible, really just trying to be affordable, approachable, and meet our clients where they're at. And I think all of that really is a little bit of a rebellion against the, the standard legal profession way of, of doing things. And then generally speaking, just as a human, I try to ask why about as much as I possibly can as well. And I think I, I find myself sort of regularly questioning a lot of our sort of societal norms. And, um, you know, with that, even my workplace, we had our intern check-ins on Friday. And, you know, interns for us aren't scan paper and file stuff away, uh, which I think is what we hear from most interns they do in their legal internships. And for us, it's a lot more. We want to invest in them and invest in the future of the legal profession to look a little bit more like what we're doing. And our check-ins were primarily sort of mental health focused because we do a mindful check-in every Monday with our interns. And, and it looked like one of them was struggling with work-life balance. And the first thing we said is that your well-being, your mental well-being should never be sacrificed for literally anything. And so if he's feeling, you know, overwhelmed by anything that we're giving him, we encouraged him to speak up and let us know. And at the end of the day, if he needs to take a day or a week or whatever he needs, we support that because if you're not right, nothing you do will be right. And so I think that unfortunately is a little bit of a rebellion against society at large from what I can tell. Sam has just really done a great job of encapsulating why I wanted to talk to him when I became aware of him, because I just really love how you've taken all of these ideas and these norms of the legal industry and been like, yeah, but why we don't, do we really have to do that? Let's try something else. And you've said, yeah, we're going to do something else and have as a result produced a business that is unlike any law firm I've ever heard of or seen, certainly. And I've been in, connected to a few in, in my time. Now I want to talk more about that, but I first want to wind back a little bit. So let's give us, give us the background on how your path went to becoming an attorney? What led you to decide to pursue law and kind of what's the background there? I always start the answer to that question with, I was not the type of person that came out of the womb with a briefcase and wanted to be a lawyer my whole life. It wasn't something that I had this sort of burning desire inside of me. And, you know, sometimes I'm a little envious of the folks that kind of knew from the get go what they wanted to do and were passionate about it. Because I think back and I think I'm pretty lucky that I fell into where I did. And I, I think it's, that's certainly a windy path. I think most people can say that about their career. And originally, you know, I, I went to college. My dad used to pay me for grades back in the middle school and high school. And that got me scholarships to University of Arizona, which being from Phoenix was far enough away from home, but close enough to home and also a big party school. That was certainly a draw. And I, you know, went down there and really didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up falling into psychology, which I think was part intuition because I've, I've always been someone that has good intuition and, and been good with people. And I think the psychology interested me and I think it lent well to my sort of way of learning and test taking and things like that. And so did really well with that. 
And then as college came to a close, the thing that I honed in on was being a sports agent. And that sort of grew out of a lot of high school athletics and trying to walk onto the track team at U of A and not making it and really just wanting to be involved in that sports world and started turning the gears to becoming a lawyer by going to law school and worked with a writing coach and did a bunch of the, you know, application materials, probably applied to 20 different schools. Luckily, you know, it was one of those things where I did well enough in college that they waived application fees, which allowed me to apply to more of them and and so on. And ultimately landed uh, at California Western School of Law in San Diego, where I still am to this day. And they gave me a full ride, which by no means I still have a ton of student debt from law school because even a full ride when you're in San Diego and can't work for three years, it, it adds up. And, and quickly, though, in law school, realized that towards agent work, I, I wouldn't want to be in that industry. I don't want a phone call at 3 a.m. from my athletes that they got into some kind of trouble, which at the time was a lot more prevalent than I think it is nowadays for whatever reason. Maybe we just don't hear about it as much. And then just fell into the golden handcuffs sort of thing with law school where you try to get the best job you can with the best pay you can and get a fast track to partner. And, you know, all of that sort of resulted in 2012, the year after I graduated, being pretty damn disenchanted with the practice of law and thinking I had made a, a pretty large mistake, a pretty expensive mistake. But luckily, ultimately found my way to Invisible Children, a nonprofit here, and then my previous business partner in the law firm that I have now. But that's a route to becoming an attorney. So I want to focus in on this moment, or maybe it wasn't really a moment, but the building to the spot where you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I think I'm in the wrong space here. This lawyer thing, I'm not sure this is, is, is right. So tell me about how you got to that awareness and what your process was with wrestling with it and how you got out of it. And that'll, I think, lead us to talking about invisible children and going from there. I think sometimes we're really good at ignoring red flags and yellow flags. And that's like a pop culture thing now, the red flag stuff. But I think we get really wrapped up in our stuff and, and we can really do a good job of, of minimizing things and not paying attention to things. And I, I think throughout college, I can go back that far, even being in a fraternity, doing all the party scene stuff and just getting wrapped up in that and then going to law school and getting wrapped up in the tie suit, get the good job, be a high powered lawyer, all of that sort of social status arrogance that comes along with grad school and certainly with lawyers in the legal industry. And it's easy to get wrapped up in that because you're all around it. And it's what you're taught and career services wants you to go get the best job for the best stats for the law school and they want you all to pass the bar. So they make you do this and that and the other. And looking back, it's really clear now, which everyone always says in hindsight, it's 2020. But I think there was just a lot of things that started to sort of click for me as far as what I had left behind in going to college and doing the frat and then doing the law school thing. And, and I was raised mostly by a single mother, my, my dad and her split custody. And, and My dad was a fantastic father growing up and he was there for me. I don't want it to sound like it was just my mom, but I think her having predominant custody, I I really have more of that feminine energy than I think a lot of men grew up with and certainly in Phoenix, Arizona of all places. And so I, I think that it took me a while to get back to myself and get back to some of that and get out of the sort of toxic cultures that we find ourselves in. Certainly the masculine toxic culture, which is sort of doubled down on in fraternities and in law school and I think ultimately just seeing um, what it did to people that were already in the profession, criminal lawyers and and defense lawyers and and litigators, and just how they're working 80 hours a week. They don't have families or their families suffer because of it. And they just look like a mess and starting to see that more and more as I got through law school. And then certainly the the first job I had out of law school, which I, I ended up in because the job I had before had a history of firing the previous law clerk to hire the next law clerk as their attorney. 
And so they actually got kicked out of our clinical internship program. And so just, you know, these different experiences in the legal industry that showed me that there's not a lot of loyalty, not a lot of value alignment. And then that first job I had, we were putting mom and pop shops out of business, which I think there's some poetic sort of justice that I help people put their mom and pop shops and their dreams together now. We had a collections branch in the office, could hear these kids yelling at these people to pay money and, and fraudulent contracts were what we were defending. And just really sort of the worst that you can imagine as far as um, a litigation attorney goes that isn't criminal law or something like that. It was rough. It, it just sort of, I think that culminated for me in seeing all the other stuff leading up to that and really, I don't know, broke something in me that really allowed me to kind of look back and see who I used to be and who I wanted to get back to being. Um, and then the progress of that certainly wasn't instant. When I made that realization, it took many years. And I, to this day, I'm still you know, trying to read something every morning that helps grow my mind and, and expand what I'm doing. It's been a long process, but I think that it's like anything else. It was pretty dark before the dawn. And, and I went through some stuff that made me realize. And I think that's that is a very common variance on that story for sure of these things build up and, and, and all of that. So was there was there any kind of a critical moment for you where there was some event or something that happened that was just, wow, I got to I have to shift gears here? Or was it a thing that just evolved gradually for you, would you say? Yeah, I remember there being one kind of two moments at that law firm that I was at right out of law school or yeah, right out of law school in 2012. One was where my boss was basically telling me I wasn't aggressive enough. I wasn't mean enough on these phone calls. And he brought me into his office to do a training call. And I just remember him hanging up the phone and saying, I made that bitch cry. They'll pay us. And I was like, wow, okay, that's, I'm not willing to go there. And then there was right. another day that that same boss, he was leaving to go do something. And he was like, like amorphous and mysterious about what thing he was going to. And, and like we see our calendars and our dockets and everything. And so we usually know what's on the, the calendar and he's being weird about it. Turns out it was like a statutory rape defense. And I was like, so we defend people that rape people under 18 years old. That's a whole other level that I wasn't aware that this law firm handled. And so those two things in in tandem stick out to me. But yeah, it was a full year of just basically everything adding up to me being want, wanting to be out of there. That's yeah, I think that would turn a lot of people's stomachs, not to mention their attention towards I need to be going a different direction here. So to, to pivot for just half a second, because you had mentioned reading and, and books, what I mean, let me say, let me ask, what is your what's been the book you've read most recently that was powerful or imp impactful to you? Um, I've, so I've been on a tear this year. I've read five books already since I think early January. Dude, you're so, crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. And I've always wanted to be that person that's like, I read 50 books last year. And so I guess I should give credit to the book that kicked this off, which was The Miracle Morning. And mm -hmm. it's something that we're all familiar with. We've heard about it. To me, it's always been something that I wrote off as, ah, that's not possible for me. Like that early in the morning doesn't exist in my world unless I'm getting up to go snowboarding or getting on a flight or something. And, and even mm -hmm. flights, I don't try to get up that early. But I, I read The Miracle Mornings and it was actually after something we talked about when we were um, preparing for this is I'd been doing the ketamine therapy um, for anxiety and depression. And, and I had done... Right. And anytime you do one of those therapy sessions for a few days afterwards, you're really encouraged to turn the screens off, do stuff that stimulates your brain, exercise. I think I'm pretty sure after I did one of the sessions, I, I went on a long bike ride to a park and I had some books and I had the Miracle Morning book with me. And it, it's a quick read. It's like 100 pages or something, large text and diagrams and stuff. And I cruised through that. And it just had these little nuggets about ways to leverage that you do get up and that you wake up and that you get to whatever it is you're doing in the morning. And so... I started doing that and I went from getting up at 7.30 a.m. I'm getting up at 5.30 a.m. now 
And I do have to give a little credit to the jet lag from the Austria trip on that, because when I got back, I was getting up a lot earlier and I wanted to leverage that. But with doing so, you create this time in the morning to be able to read. And as an attorney, I read all day long. And so reading at night is a tall order. And it's always been why I've struggled to read a lot. And so it was a really long way of answering your question. But I think Miracle Mornings is is the one that kind of kicked this all off. And then I Mm -hmm. am currently right now reading something called The Untethered Soul, which is fascinating about just separating yourself from all of what we observe, which it basically posits that everything is just something we observe and ourself is ourself. Mm hmm. Cool. Okay. So that's cool. I'm going to, I will put both of these in the show notes with, uh, with links for folks who are interested. Miracle Morning is definitely a book I'm familiar with and it's got some really good concepts in it. And I appreciate that it is, like you said, it's shortened to the point, but that doesn't mean it's not powerful. And yeah, being able to step out of right what's going on and to get that different perspective can be such a powerful thing in both, I think, disconnecting from the emotion of a situation, but also giving us a different perspective or a broader perspective than what we've had. And so to use that to step back into your story here, so you come to this realization that one, this law firm certainly, and two, like law in general, you're like, I, I, I don't know about this. And then so take us from there on what happened next on your career journey and how Invisible Children ties into that. Yeah, I would say that Invisible Children was really like the paradigm shift, like the tectonic plate. That's where they moved for me because I went from this sort of soul crushing law job. And the funny thing of it is that like you're so conditioned in law school and just in our society to want the office with the bookshelves and the big desk and, and the windows. And I had all of that at that law firm that, that I ended up hating and didn't get out of beds really on, bed on the weekends because of how out of alignment it was for me. And in retrospect now, I'm like, desk and books and who gives a shit, really? And so when I went to Invisible Children, I went to two different places from that law job. One was volunteering as an intern, unpaid at Invisible Children. And so I also had to find something that could pay the bills, of course. And so I worked at a essentially a startup kind of tech company that dealt with email advertising and marketing campaigns. And I was sourcing the IP addresses from all over the world, which the tech aspect of that I can somewhat explain, but it's not necessary and it would make your listeners sleep. But I was doing that and then also doing the Invisible Children thing sort of part time as well. And Invisible Children is where I got to and saw other people, you know, my age, older, younger, whatever it was, but with degrees that you wouldn't expect they are using for what they're doing, whether that's setting up a global satellite phone system for the organization so that they can do the work on the ground in Africa or figuring out how to build wells and the architecture of a school in Uganda and these just these different things that I would have never thought that I would be applying my legal degree towards and and was. And, and really like the first thing that I worked on there was that global phone contract because with anything, people are the sort of best and worst of it. And so with that contract, the original company they were working with, the guy started just showing up intoxicated to the headquarters and absconded with a couple hundred thousand dollars of their money. And so essentially I had to figure out within the contracts how to salvage that, try to get the money back and then find a new provider that would have a contract that wouldn't allow any of that to go on. And so I successfully navigated that somehow and got them set up with their phone, global phone system. But it was just such a learning experience to see all these younger people that were so motivated and doing different things that 
it taught me that I didn't need to be that three-piece suit corner office nonsense that I mentioned before. And so that was really where the sort of perspective shift came in. And then from there, the general counsel approached me about a year and a half after being there to start our own law firm. And, And technically, it was never my choice to go down the path that I went down. And I always actually said that as a first or second year attorney, don't open your own law firm, learn from the mistakes of somebody else that's hired you. So it wasn't really my path or planned path at all. And I'm still super grateful for it, but I can't take the credit for actually taking the steps to get me where I am technically. True. Although you did go along. <laughs> True. <laughs> you could have said And no. I always tell people I had a feeling something was coming when I was in Invisible Children, something that I would do next. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what it would be. And it turns out this is what it was. Right. Now, for people who don't know, tell us a little bit about Invisible Children, who they are and what they do. Yeah. So Invisible Children nowadays, I'll work backwards. They are a lobbying organization in DC, really working to get our government to respond to the problems on the ground in Africa. And so when I say on the ground in Africa, I'm actually referring to a large region that includes the Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Uganda. And so the reason that those three nation states are are the region that makes up where Invisible Children focused is because Joseph Kony and, and the, I believe it was the Lord's Liberation Army. I might might have butchered that, but it was Joseph Coney's sort of rebel army. And what they did is they would actually kidnap children from all the villages in that region and turn them into soldiers in his army. And back when I was in Invisible Children, it was a larger organization. We had probably 40 or 50 staff members. We had another sort of probably 100 interns. And then we had all kinds of satellite offices on the ground there in Africa. And The work back then was really multifaceted. It was teaching entrepreneurship skills to women in the villages, to kids that have gotten out of the army, getting kids out of the, to the extent of like dropping biodegradable flyers over that entire region from airplanes that that had three different languages on them, telling people where safe villages were that they could go to, which that in and of itself was a fascinating thing because some of these villages, they get their children stolen and then they come back and they shoot that village, they pillage that village, whatever it is. And so some villages were not welcoming to kids that were trying to get out of that, that army. Others were. And so that was a dynamic that, that had to be dealt with. And one of my most like, inspiring experiences with Invisible Children was we did a huge sort of summit at UCLA. And I think this must have been in 2013. And it had like vendors that were all sustainable and give back vendors or vendors that work with folks on the ground, artisans on the ground in Africa. And then a huge sort of like show with projection mapping and popular artists. And I remember we launched those flyers over the audience of that big sort of performance. And so hands on with those flyers. But it was just a really incredible group of people and and organization and really just a game changer for me, for sure. It seems like we're talking really multiple levels of different perspective here. One, the people you were working with, seeing different folks who were taking and using their professional training and their degrees in different ways, but two, the nature of the work that you were doing you know, through the organization and what you were supporting is such a different thing than, say, a law firm that's um, busy basically defending child rapists. And it's a, that's a really big perspective shift, and it really does sound like that impacted you very powerfully. Absolutely. Yeah, I th- I, it was just, yeah, night and day, really. And the being on the UCLA campus, too, was really incredible because within a nonprofit organization, not everyone gets to work with legal, not everyone wants to work with legal. And quite frankly, to Invisible Children, most of the time, what we were doing was pumping out really beautiful creative content. And with creatives, I've 
I worked with them there and now I've worked with creatives for years. I know that there's just a degree of irreverence towards law and, and what these different things are. And so a lot of the time it was dealing with the creatives in the organization saying, let them sue us. And us saying, no, that's, there's better ways to go about this. Um, but then the UCLA event was really cool because I really just got to work with a lot of different people. I made myself really useful in whatever it was. Do I need to stack chairs? Do I need to run food to someone? Does someone need sunscreen? And then also bringing around the legal contracts for all the vendors at the big summit marketplace that we did. And so it was whatever was needed. And I think that was really where I got to know and got close to a lot of the people that to this day are either clients or friends still from Invisible Children. So tell me about the emotional aspect of that shift as you're settling into this work with Invisible Children and all of this, such a change. And how did that feel? And what was your kind of awareness about this difference? How did that evolve for you? Yeah, it's so interesting because I think I would go back to how we just get caught up in in our stuff. And I think during that time, it was how can I feel more of this? How can I be more of this? How can I engage more with these people that I find so inspiring from that organization? And so that was what motivated the being so helpful at the UCLA event, because it was just like, what can I do? How can I help? I want to be involved. I want to be helpful to all of you and show my value. And so I think the emotional aspect of it was at the time, really, I want more of this. This feels good, actually. And if I can do this for my day to day, like if this is how I can spend my time, that's so different than what I've experienced and what I hear most people talking about in their careers and looking at friends. At, at the time, I do remember being upset at the fact that I was looking at friends that were moving their way up in their corporate cubicle jobs and making lots of money. And I wasn't and, and still certainly not wealthy by any means. But I think that at that point in time, that was such a lesser thought than, wow, this all feels good. Wow, these people are great. Everyone says thank you. That's another thing that I think is just really unspoken in the legal industry is that the vast majority of most lawyers, what they do, not only is so hard to explain to their clients that clients are hard pressed to feel gratitude for what they do, but in more importantly, so like most lawyers, the way they interact with their clients, there's no gratitude there anyway. And so I, I've always been really present to the fact and initially really taken aback by how thankful people can be for the work that I'm doing in this industry. And, and I remember that being something that I very much wanted to keep having that experience of people valuing my contributions and my work. Sounds like a real radical energetic shift. Absolutely. Yeah. And looking back on it, one of those things that I think it was the what catapulted me towards just personal growth and development, which, like I mentioned earlier, was really an arc back to who I was before I got wrapped up in all of the different things that that we think of for these different professions in society. So it sounds like you felt that energetic shift and you followed it is what I think I'm hearing here. And you followed along with that and embraced that. And that's what led down down the this different path here. And okay, so tell us about the going into the thing of starting a law firm and going from there because I know there was the the firm that you had before better and then the the creation of better. So give us that part of the journey. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I I would be remiss if I didn't mention that part of the reason that sort of sent me down this kind of energy and spiritual and personal growth was that I have a lot of back issues and I had really bad back problems around going into Invisible Children, and I started this sort of alternative therapy that that was yoga focused, and it got me into meditation. And that really has been a catalyst, I think, for me as well. But yeah, so starting the law firm, the general counsel at Invisible Children, my previous business partner, her name's Emily Wilkinson. She does uh, nonprofit consulting now. She approached me after about a little over a year at Invisible Children. And around that time, they were actually starting to turn the gears to, to downsize and become the 
lobbying organization that they are now. And so they were letting people go. And she was one of the higher paid people there in being head legal counsel. And so they were letting her go. And so she was looking forward to what was next and trying to figure out that for herself. And she always said the way she put it is that she decided to start a law firm and there was no question in her mind that she wanted to partner with me. And so she approached me at, I believe it was the holiday party for Invisible Children. And I'm like, probably three sheets to the wind playing flip cup or beer pong or something back on the before times when that <laughs> didn't sound like COVID central. And sure. yeah, and, and she said, I want to talk to you about not a work thing. And so met her the next morning at Starbucks and she just laid it on me that she wanted to start a law firm and be 50-50 partners. And so to me, that felt like whatever that thing was that I felt was coming next. And I said, sure, what's next? And so we had a website up within a few months. We were doing phone calls out of my car because it was the only place we had air conditioning at the time for our like consultations and stuff. And really got lucky that Invisible Children sort of, what I always say is it jettisoned all these really talented people out to do really innovative and creative things all over the country. And so that kind of created a built-in clientele for us, which I'm really lucky for to this day. And then as time went on, Emily's priorities just shifted. She wanted to become a mother. She wanted to start a family. And so we started to sunset Wilkmaz. It was Wilkinson Mazio, and then we shortened it to Wilkmaz. We started to sunset that law firm in 2019. And so going into 2020, which 2019 had a bunch of health stuff that, that really took me down. And it's funny looking back at going into 2020, I was like, you can only go up from here and, and COVID. But I did launch better on March 1st, 2020 of all times to launch this law firm with the idea and the intent to do two in-person events per month. So much for that. We're here. We're coming up on our two-year anniversary. And I think we've been um, even more successful than my last law firm. So I, I can't complain more than the average bear with everything going on in the world these days. So there's so many stories that I've heard of people who were starting things or planning things or, right, there was so much there that just got absolutely intercepted or disrupted. But it sounds like for you, you were able to, even though you had this vision of the, okay, we're going to do these in-person events and do all this, that you've been able to say, okay, fine, we're going to make this happen anyway and are continuing to push forward with better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's still certainly a degree of disappointment from not being able to do those in-person events. And we've done as many other things as we could think of. We've done a lot of online workshops to get that education out. We've got 110 videos on YouTube that are all explaining legal concepts, five to 10 minute videos. We did an anti-racist book giveaway during 2020. We, we're really just trying to do things that provide value to our communities, which is what it's all about for us, I think. And at the end of the day, I, I always look and think about I'm still really lucky. I wasn't uh, graduating college and missing my graduation because of COVID. I wasn't missing, if I'm a college athlete, my playoffs or March Madness or whatever it is. And I'm also not a parent. I'm not dealing with this incredibly difficult situation of at-home school, go to school, don't go to school, no vaccines, now there's vaccines. And so I think I've just been really lucky. And, and I think that sort of maintaining that perspective and really just pushing ahead on what the original plan was for the law firm sans the in-person events allowed us to stay the course. And I have a really good staff, minority partner, Olivia. She's fantastic at my firm. And I would probably not be able to do it without her. She would shake her head at that and say, that's not the case, but she's tremendously helpful and a great attorney and lucky in that I've got good people around me. That's always going to be part of the story for anybody's success, but really set a good foundation learning from that first law firm about what I wanted to do differently for the new one too. How have you evolved two things that I'm thinking about in as far as the, the business side of this? One, the focus of who you specifically seek to serve and how you serve them, but also how you find and connect with these people. 
Yeah. So who we seek to serve, I think, is a little bit of a nebulous demographic, so to speak. I think typically it's just going to be anybody doing cooler shit than we are, which is most people. And we're just running a law firm. So it's most people. And I do think that over the last few years, there's certainly been a little bit of an awakening of whose values resonate with you. And do you want to do business with maybe folks that have different value sets or different viewpoints? And I think that for us, we're not tremendously outward focused on that type of conversation, but I think that there is an inherent feel for client relationships. And so I think we start with, are you a nonprofit? Are you a small business? Is there some sort of social good give back aspect to what you do? And that alone certainly doesn't, in my mind, move the needle one way or the other politically or socially. It just is, that's what they want to do. It could be any type of give back. And so we start there, I think, and not that we only exclusively take folks that are focused on social good, but that's usually an aspect of what people come to us with. And then from there, we have free consultations. And in those free consultations, we learn a lot about what that relationship might look like and, and how that might flow. And for me over the years, I've been doing this now for you know over 10 years and running a law firm for most of that time. And you get a good idea of how people interact with your systems and how they're going to be as a client. And so there's also just a degree of what is going to be good for our sort of, like I mentioned before, our mental well-being and sort of our work-life balance, because I think that's the other evolution that has been really important for me is sort of unattaching myself from client issues and, and sort of, because as a lawyer, we, we really sign up to take on other people's problems. And so you have to be really good at disassociating yourself from those problems because in reality, they are not yours. And But you have to treat them as if they are because that's your sworn oath as an attorney to advocate zealously for your client. But there is this sort of ability still within that to remove yourself, but still put all of your effort into it. And so I think that evolution for me has been tremendous. And I think with that, it's allowed us as a law firm and, and as uh, my associate and minority partner that I mentioned, Olivia, she progresses in her career allows us to really feel more confident and more solid in saying, hey, we're not a good fit, or hey, this hasn't been working. Look, we can even refund that invoice. We'll give you some referrals for who might be a better fit. Or sometimes a little bit more of a not so copacetic disengagement where we have to send a letter that's basically, you don't listen to us and you're actually quite horrible. We're not going to work with you anymore. Mm -hmm. We've had a couple of those, unfortunately, over the years. But I think for us, it's really, and it goes back to what I said, do these people say thank you? There's these just sort of things that are in between the lines that that I think business and certainly the legal industry doesn't necessarily typically focus on. And, and we certainly try to. How do you think that different focus has affected you, your employees, and the progress and growth of your firm over the last couple of years relative to yeah. other more traditional law firm, shall we say? Yeah, and I think that the traditional law firm's burnout is just something that is so much more prevalent. And, and not to say that we don't feel burnout. I, I, none of what I say is meant to say, oh, we're impervious to that, or we're above that, or we're whatever, like, we are self-actualized, enlightened. No, like, none of, like, we're always working towards anything. And, and so, and it's certainly during COVID and everything, these last few years, burnout is something that is, I think, omnipresent for, for most of us, unless we really take conscious steps for it not to be. And so I think that that's part of it is that we really fend off burnout a little bit better because there is a focus on our well-being within my law firm. Like I mentioned with the interns and, and certainly we, we do unlimited PTO, things like that are, are just baked into my law firm. And so I think that's been a little bit of it and really just being human with it. I guess the way I would put it is that 
everything in my professional career and, and personally as well has gone better and felt better and been better for everyone around so long as you're just authentic and transparent and you don't play any bullshit or games and it's just treating people straight and, and like humans. And that makes everything easier and better. I'm pausing so that can sink in for everyone who's listening because I, yeah, it's one of those things on the on one hand, it seems duh, but it is, especially in certain industries, that's a radical idea. Unfortunately. And that's why it's funny too. Like I, I heard myself saying better 17 times in those last few sentences and that's not intentional, but the idea behind better was not necessarily we're better than anyone else or our services are better than anyone else. If our clients feel that way, awesome, fantastic. That's part of the goal. But for us, it's being better than we were yesterday, doing better, trying to help our clients be better and do better. And so it's funny when I have these conversations and the word better comes up so much because I really do think that most of what I'm doing on a daily basis is striving to be better in one way or another or multiple ways. And, and one of those is certainly trying to have a workplace that is better for the people in it. Right. Now, it, that, that focus on improvement or being better, as, as you put it, is something that is really, I can hear that. It's this thread through so much of, of what you have done and how you go about doing things. Now, I know better is also a B Corp, correct? That is correct. And 1% for the planet as well. And 1% for the planet. Okay. So tell us, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of those things and, and have some vague awareness of them, but tell us a little bit about one, what they are and two, what made you decide to, to become a B Corp and to sign up with 1% for the planet? Yeah, for sure. Those are things that were on my radar even before we filed the paperwork to start this law firm. It was absolutely, that will be part of the trajectory of the law firm because I think that if nothing else, these things are signposts for the public that let you know what we stand for at a glance. It's like, you see that badge, you know what that means. And I think if nothing else, that is a tremendous filter for clientele, like we were talking about, first and foremost. But then in addition to that, I mean, the B Corp movement, well, I'll start with 1% for the planet because it's you can apply and, and get certified for that earlier in your business trajectory. B Corp certification requires a year being under your belt of operation. And so 1% for the planet is exactly what it sounds like. You sign up, you go through a little bit of an application process, and then essentially what you're promising is that you will donate 1% of your revenue to the planet. And so we do that through typically, I ask my staff, and we're in this process right now at the turn of the year, I ask my staff for them to find the nonprofits that are within the 1% for the planet community that we can donate to. And then we divvy up the amount that we will donate four ways and donate it to those four organizations that the staff has chosen. And last year, one of them was the San Diego River Park Foundation, which is right here in San Diego. There's this river that goes all the way through and I bike on it all the time. So I was stoked that someone chose that one. It wasn't even the one that I, I put my quarter of it towards an organization called Business for Good San Diego that has an environmental focus that I'm very heavily involved with. And so that's 1% for the planet. You can also provide services through it as your donation. We haven't done that as much. There just hasn't been as much need. And I think there's kind of some of that stuff on hold during all of the COVID that's going on. And then the B Corp certification is through an organization called the B Lab. And this is one that I always, this is a little bit of a legal nugget here in the podcast for everyone is there's the B Corps, which is a B Corporation, which is something you actually get from the state. It's an actual corporate structure and governance structure. And then there's B Corp certification from the B Lab. And so we are a benefit corporation. I always joke that when you give a lawyer the keys to the castle on formation of a, an entity, we are a certified 
B Corp, Benefit Corporation, Professional Corporation with an S Corp election. So like we, we are all the things. Yeah. And, and that's to most people. They're like, wow, I just glossed over and went to sleep. But hey, right. The rest of us are like going, I actually follow most of that, but it's like, Mr. Lee, huh? So yeah, yeah, totally. Anyway, continue. Yeah. And the benefit corporation aspect is the governance, which just means how your bylaws are structured and, and things like that. And the main thing with that is just that it's a double bottom line. So, you know, normal for-profit corporations, the only bottom line is profit. And then with benefit corporations, it's impact and profit. And so that's built into the fabric of that corporate governance structure, meaning that you, if you had shareholders, for instance, you think of a big company, there's something called a shareholder derivative suit where the shareholders can sue the people that run the company for not maximizing profit. That doesn't exist in the B Corp, at least with regard to not maximizing profit, because if you're maximizing your benefit, then that's also part of your bottom line and that's built into the fabric of the company. And the B Corp certification, that is a pretty lengthy assessment process. You have to go through this online assessment that's like a few hundred questions and it kind of changes based on your answers. You have to get a score, I think, of 82 or higher. I don't know how many are possible, maybe 130. Um, and I think we scored a little bit over 100 on that, which we were super proud of. But also in full transparency, easier for us. We don't have widgets. We don't have a factory. We don't have waste. We don't have a lot of the infrastructure that creates the things that make it harder for you to get certified. We're partly female owned, things like that. So all of that goes into it. And then once you're B Corp certified, you get to put the little badge, of course, on the website, you pay some dues every year. And the dues go to funding that movement and really helping with things that the B Corp movement pushes on, whether that's environmental policy or whatever it might be, because some of the larger ones that are B Corps, Patagonia, things, those types of companies are also B. And so there's sometimes a summit that they do. I went to the one in LA in 2019, I think it was. And that was tremendous to be in a room full of, it was like going from big fish, small pond in San Diego and the B Corp community to like very small fish, very big pond, very big fish around. That was super cool. And then the other thing that we did that I do want to give a shout out to a local San Diego company called Offset Alliance is we offset our carbon output. And this is a relatively sort of controversial thing in the environmental communities because it's almost seen as a free pass to pollute if you just offset it. And I think that in some regards that is true for a Coca-Cola or a giant company that has the ability to make changes where they can reduce that. For my company, our offset, our carbon is from driving to work, taking airplanes, whatever it is. I ride a bike everywhere, so I don't have a whole lot. And so for us, it's a really like low-hanging fruit thing that we can still do because the offsets actually go to planting trees in places and things like that to create carbon sinks. And so the Offset Alliance company I mentioned here in San Diego, they're great. And so we, we do that with them to offset our annual carbon output as well. Very cool. So I will, for everybody who's listening, I'm going to have links for all of this stuff in the show notes and definitely encourage you to check out all of these. Going through the B Corp directory is really fascinating and interesting because you have this mix of, like like he said, like Patagonia, REI, these really large um, corporations that everybody knows. But then you've got Sam, There's and there's a lot of other very small organizations, but and, which is cool because it's you don't have to be some big player to be a part of this. It's really about more the idea of what you're trying to do. And that's part of where I wanted to, to touch on this a little bit as I think people think of business and profit and often just think of it as these things that always go together. But the reality is there are different forms and structures that this can take. And we look at things like benefit corporations and such. It's a way where you can say, sure, we want to make money we want to you know make a living and make profit but we also want to make the world a better place and we're actually structuring and designing ourselves legally in a way to support and facilitate that that's not just being a nonprofit, right there's other ways of right. doing this which is really cool 
Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, it goes back to what I had mentioned before, which is treating people like humans, being straight with people, being transparent, being authentic. I think this is all wrapped up in that. And I really do think that the more you can do things with your business that lift people up, align with your values and do the right thing and put the right thing out there and to different people, the right thing is different. But I think that the more you can do something that contributes value to those that you do it with and those around you and really just add value, it's almost cliche nowadays, but adding value is so tremendous. And and when you're adding value to people, people are so tremendous, good and bad, really. We're super complicated animals and we're super stupid sometimes, but we're also incredible and beautiful and complex. And I think the more that we can invest in other people and the more that we add value that way to people, the more that like business is successful, the, the, the best businesses we're going to see in the coming generations are going to be the ones that invest the most in their people and lift those people up. And, and that's across the board. That's not just investing in the people that you're used to seeing and the people that you have around. It means diversity. It means representation. It means having the ability to maybe do something that's not normal, do something that's not financially as prudent because you're taking a chance on someone or because you're taking a chance on a company. And that always, I think, in my mind, pays dividends. And and it's because people matter most. People over profit over my my shoulder here. It's it's I really do believe that. And I really do believe that the more that you invest in people, the more that that pays back tenfold and the more that your business can be successful doing that. I think that really shows through kind of everything about how you approach your business, about your journey and all of that. I'm curious how, what sort of reception you have received from, shall we say, more traditional law firms and, and um, attorneys who you've connected with who are on a more, again, typical or traditional attorney path? What do they think about what you're up to? Yeah, I think it's a mix. There's certainly the ones that they see it and they go, holy shit, that's awesome. I wish I could do that because they're in personal injury or criminal law or something like that. And they try to put their spin on it as much as they can. And I've even seen some of the bigger law firms have new photos up of their lawyers where they're like in a polo, hanging out with their arm on a railing and trying to look real casual. And that's not the authenticity that I'm talking about. But hey, you took a shot, you you shot your shot, it looks okay. And so there's the ones that kind of get it and the ones that might even be a little bit envious of it. And then I think there are certainly the other segment, which are the ones that kind of look at it and they think that's childish or silly or doesn't have any staying power or just no place in, in the industry. And I think The best example of a conversation like that that I had was before starting better, I really had a kind of six month period of time where I was soul searching on what I was going to do next with my career. And I wasn't sure that I was going to start another law firm. The partnership dissolution that I had with Wilkmaz was not easy. It, It was pretty trying both emotionally and professionally. And so I wasn't sure I wanted to set myself up to go through that again. I wasn't sure I wanted to continue to deal with other people's problems and all the things. And so I started talking to other law firms about maybe trying to like transition the book of business to another law firm and then maybe take some time off and figure it out. And in one of the conversations I was having, which was with another law firm that was similarly situated, they were a purpose-driven law firm that helped nonprofits. And so presumably and ostensibly they got it and they didn't. And we were having lunch and I remember the conversation sort of turning to, I wanted to maintain some autonomy in, in the brand that I had built. And the partner at the other firm was like, well, what does that mean? What do you even mean? And looking back, I I understand now that that they had the idea in mind of they were just going to gobble us up and make us go away. And then we work for them. 
And so that was confusing for them to hear that I wanted the brand to stay in all of this. And then we had, I think we had wine at lunch or something. And the partner was like, I've had a couple of wines. I'm just going to say it. And I'm like, I'm a big kid. You can say whatever it is you need to say. And she just went in on how other lawyers in our legal community look at our brand as stupid and crass and like unprofessional. And the main thing she was banging the drum on was we had a, a segment of our website at the old law firm called Lawyer Shit. And we thought it was hilarious. It was just like dumb lawyer shit on there that like some lawyers be like, oh, that's I know that resonates. And other people are like, oh, that's apparently lawyer shit and hated it, hated that it had profanity, like just really couldn't abide by it at all. And, and I remember, I think what I had actually said or some version of this was that's the reaction we want. I frankly don't give a shit. And it, it, there's definitely mixed uh, reactions. And, and I'm starting to see the newer small law firms crop up that are doing things even differently than we are and, and maybe more leaning into influencers and online and that type of stuff, or maybe leaning into the casual aspect of it more. And I think I sometimes find myself with my own inner monologue judgments of those things. And it feels like maybe I'm turning into a dinosaur in our profession, but I, I catch myself luckily. And I walk myself back from that because they're doing it different, just like I did. And that's at the end of the day, what, what I want to see. Because if everyone keeps working on thinking about how can they innovate, how can they find other ways of doing this? Ultimately, that's going to pr provide diversity, which I think is good for the legal industry as a whole. Totally. And right. So while you might have some of these more old school attorneys who aren't really appreciative, what do your clients think? And how does how you are and what you do? How does it land with them? I'm curious. Yeah, I, I think the number one thing that probably, I guess there's a few things that come to mind that seem to resonate most with our clients. I definitely think that we're a lot less expensive than most attorneys that do what we do. I think our hourly rates and our flat fees are exceedingly reasonable. And, and certainly with the education and the empowerment that we infuse and weave into everything that we do, I think that is the other thing that probably is the big driver of, of folks working with us is that I feel like most of the time I'm our clients' cheerleaders as much as I am their legal counsel. And in all reality, like that's the more fun aspect of it, because by and large, working with creatives, they never value themselves enough. They don't charge enough for their work. They're scared to do that. And not all creatives. I think some creatives have really stepped into their own power and they understand their value and they charge a lot or even crazy amounts that I'm like, man, I got into the wrong profession. But a lot of the time we're encouraging people to value themselves more and ignore that imposter syndrome nonsense and just really step into what they're doing because it's what they chose to do and they love it and they'd love it more if they really felt that way about it. And so a lot of the time, that's where I think a lot of our clients really want to come back to us. And a lot of the time when we get word of mouth referrals, which is the main place we get business is really just referrals. I always say happy clients get happy clients. And so I think a lot of it really is we get people that come to us and they say, oh, I worked with you. And they said, you're just amazing to work with. And, and it's not always just that sort of interpersonal support that we provide. I think we're also, it can go to an appearance that maybe we aren't as on it or as like efficient or any of those things, but that's just not the case. It can be both. And, and we have rules internally about turnaround time on client projects and communication. And you're not going to not, you're not going to go for more than a day and not hear from us about something at most. And we're responsive, we're professional. We, we get stuff done for our clients. We do it in a way that makes sense for them. And then we're there for them, whether it be conversations about books we're reading or whether it be about their legal matter, we're there for them. And I think that people really appreciate having a human that also is helping them with their legal compliance. The word human was exactly the one that was sitting in my head. I'm like, this sounds almost not unsettling really because it's not, but this is, wow, this is very human. It's like, this isn't 
very, it's not overly stiff and professional and so business focused. It's, hey, we're humans helping other humans deal with this specific set of goals and challenges. And we're just trying to remember. The first remember, tagline we ever had on our website was humanizing the practice of law. Perfect. Exactly. And that's, that is absolutely what it sounds like. Cool. All right. So Sam, one of the things I always like to do with my guests, and so you can tell me if you're up for this or not, is I like to take a little bit of time and have us explore and dig into one of the obstacles or challenges that you're facing at the moment and see if we can unpack that a little bit and see if we can unstick some things for you. So you want to play? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. All right. So what is a current challenge or obstacle that you are wrestling with better right now? Yeah. So right now, I think it's a sort of tried and true obstacle, which is just financially. Right now we're dealing with our last tax payment of 2021. And it was one where I think we just had a a larger Q4 than we expected. And so the tax bill was a little bit higher. And so we're paying it in chunks. But the real challenge of that is that we only, we're not a like cash hog business. We are cash in, cash out, and we are subject to the ebb and flow of what our clients need in the industry. And so we're not by any means in like the hole or anything right now. We're not in debt or anything like that. We don't ever really carry debt, but we're in a situation where I have to look at our payrolls and try to then plan out what chunks I can pay on the taxes. And then mixed up in that, of course, is that I have staff that would like raises and are due raises really, if I'm being and or more hours and things like that. And then mixed in with all of that is that the going back to one of the most important things to me about running a business, which is being good to my people. And for instance, like I mentioned, the unlimited PTO, we pay full health and dental for our staff. They don't have to pay a dime of that premium. And then I also like to do events with our team. So this Friday, we're going out on a two and a half hour sailing cruise for whale watching. And that stuff costs money too. And so it's just this like, how do we get the taxes paid? How do we make the raises happen? How do we do all the fun stuff and still have money in the bank? And a lot of the time, the most sort of apparent resolution or solution to that is that I don't take my paycheck. And so that's one of the things that usually is on the list of that can help with the finances. So the first thing I want to highlight here is like the thing. So the psychotherapist will tell you people all assume that it's sex. That is the thing people are least willing and comfortable talking about in therapy. And the reality is it's usually money. And yet, so Sam comes in and he's like, there's this kind of cash flow situation that we're wrestling with right now and all this and just drops right out there. So I, I think I highlight this mostly to be like, see, Sam really is very different from, from most folks. He's just like, here's what's going on. So obviously, right, the the kind of foregoing or uh, deferring your paycheck is one option. What, what other sorts of options have you thought about or looked at with navigating this? Yeah, it's a good question. And I like that you highlight that I'm like, yeah, let's just jump right into money. I, I've always found, to be honest, that like, Having the conversations about the stuff we don't have the conversations about really is a tremendous mental health and just like well-being tool because you learn that people have the same ideas, the same questions, the same fears that you do, and we don't talk about it. But yeah, anyway, I could talk about that for hours. So one of the other things that we try to, or that I look at when we get into any type of financial crunch is that when we first started the law firm, I got a credit card and luckily it had a lot of credit limits. So 30 grand or something like that. And so worst case scenarios, we can always look at transitioning bills over to the credit card until we get the cash flow back up. And so that's always an option that I look at because you can float a balance for a little while and just pay the minimum payment until you get the cash flow back. And we inevitably every year will have a month or two that's up above our goals that kind of makes us a little bit more cash flush. And so to me, that's a, the game here is that We just need to make the payments we can within the finances that we have until we have one of those windfall months 
And then that usually evens things back out for us. So it sounds, I wonder if there's not two things here. One is the, okay, how do we navigate this specific incident or event that's happened here? But it sounds like for you, because there is this ebb and flow that happens, I'm wondering if you feel like there is maybe a need to look at how you navigate your revenue so that you can take the, basically take the part off the peak and have it set aside for the trough, if that makes sense. And is is that a thing that you've looked at that maybe we need to look at just generally navigating our cash flow in a way that balances out these ebbs and flows? Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm going to take up with our CPA too, because she's the one that is enable, enables us to plan the numbers wise, what the figures look like, and maybe how much we take off that peak for the valley. And I think one of the the, I guess, other aspects of it too, is that we are raising our rates. And so that's another thing that we're factoring into this. And at the beginning of the year, we raised our rates. It's 50 bucks across the board. It's not anything tremendous. And listeners that are like, we said he's affordable. It's 50 bucks an hour. It's not a tremendous amount. And so we, we started that at the beginning of the year for all new clients. And we're already seeing a little bit of an impact there. And then we're going to raise that at the two-year anniversary for all of our existing clients. And so I think that contributes to what you mentioned there of maybe taking a piece of the peak and setting it aside, because I think that allows us to get up to that peak again more quickly and also maybe maintain larger cash reserves if we're running more or less on the same type of financial basis, but we've increased our rates. Right. Now, have you talked about this you know, with, with your staff and gotten their input on thoughts about how to navigate it to see what kind of things, because like the, the parties, for example, just as an example, that's, that's really cool that you do that. I, I worked for an organization for a time that did a lot of those things and really appreciated it. It was definitely a thing that made you feel valued and it was a nice way to get a break with folks that you were working with. But I wonder what their thoughts are about different ways of, of managing this or if they're like, it's cool, cut the parties back a little bit. Or they're like, it's fine if the raise has to wait a few months, it's no big deal. We like it here. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I try to be extremely transparent, obviously in line with our conversation with my folks. And it's a pretty regular check-in with them and I'm pretty transparent. They all have logged into the bank and any of our financial platforms and things like that. What I've really found though, is that I, I do, I'm relatively young. I'm 36, 37 this year. And my staff is all much younger than me. I think our paralegals like over 10 years younger than me and, and our associate and minority partner live is close to a decade younger than me. And so it's one of those things where I think um, for her and, and definitely for our paralegal, they're not as interested in being a business owner and dealing with finances. And they're looking at that as like, Sam's the owner, that's his nonsense to deal with. I don't want to be looking at spreadsheets and budgets. And so sure. I, I keep them apprised of it. And I do that so that they know that it's not this arbitrary withholding of a raise or anything like that, because that's the worst fear for me is that they think this is just some, oh, Sam's just withholding money, whatever. We've got all this money in the bank. And so I try to be very transparent with them. And I try to also do it in a way that doesn't scare them or make them think that we're going to crash and burn or anything like that. And I always make it um, very clear that like worst case scenario, I don't take a paycheck. That usually is more than enough to kick us to the next payroll. And so I definitely talk it out with them. I, I don't think that they would say, let's ditch the parties. I think and my thing with that too, that I always say to them is if 500 bucks or a thousand bucks here and there is going to take us down, we got bigger problems, right? So the party, it, you could look at it and say, it's like the lattes thing that they say about millennials. If you stop buying lattes, you can buy a house, which is bullshit. But it's, it's that idea. It's like we do a party every month and that adds up. And I, I just try to keep an eye on that. Okay. So I hear that your concern, one of the things here that's driving this as much as anything is this worry about you're trying to really be mindful about 
who you are and how you're seen by your staff. And that it's a thing of really wanting to be like, this is not, the goal here is not to be like, I'm going to be you know greedy and just hold on to this. And oops, it's say, okay, here's this thing that I want need to be able to navigate. And there's ideas here, but I want to make sure that it's done in a way that's thoughtful and that really gets respect from the staff and concerned about that. Now yeah. I hear it. I was just going to say, I think that's one of those things where it's rebelling against, because it's unfortunate that's the perspective. The de- default is, oh, we've got tons of money. And I'm just not getting a raise because Sam doesn't want to do a raise or whatever. And, and, and that's the default in business, unfortunately. Right. Now, do you think that the transparency that you have provided to them is is sufficient to address that question? Or is there, there more there that might be needed? Yeah, I, I always try to just pull it out of them if it doesn't feel good to them, if they do want to know more. And I'm luckily pretty good with people and can read people well. And so when we have these conversations in person, Sometimes I can tell and I'm like, what's going on? What, what's the question that's brewing up there? And a lot of the time, it's something pretty straightforward. And I had a situation last year with the paralegal that we had before the one we have now. And it was towards the end of her time with us. And I think she's just started to build up some, that perspective built up resentment in, in her mind. And there was a question as to whether or not she was getting a raise or something like that before she left. And she didn't understand that I could run payroll like the day before p- the paychecks. And so she was like, what, what are we gonna, when are we going to talk about it? And she was getting really upset thinking that I was dragging my feet past the payroll point just to not give her that pay increase. And so at one point I mentioned, hey, I can run payroll like up until next week. And automatically, instantly, she was totally talked down off that ledge and was far less aggressive and upset. And, and it's just like you said, there's sometimes just an extra thing that needs to be known in order to remove that incorrect perspective. And yeah, I try my best to get that out of people and see what's bothering them, if anything is, and make sure that things are really clear for them. I've just always found, and I encourage them to to be more interested in it, but I found that I'm the entrepreneur and I've got some staff that likes to learn about entrepreneurship once in a while, but is pretty good with what they're doing. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to poke into this just, just a little bit, because I'm hearing First off, as far as the logistics of how to deal with this problem, you've got a number of ideas that all seem like you know viable, workable solutions. Then there's a little bit of the emotional piece of you know being mindful of how people perceive me, and you've worked really hard on the transparency and shown a willingness to address that. So I'm wondering, like this, I'm hearing this, I'm like, doesn't sound like too much of a, a, a problem in certain ways. So I'm wondering, like, what else is here? Or is there a deeper thing that this connects to for you that is causing this to have have more weight than it at least obviously would seem to to me? Yeah, I, I think it's funny you asked that book that I'm reading, The Untethered Soul, is all about what walls have we built? What pain are we trying to hide? And I think having you ask that question, I think it's probably two different things. There was certainly the vast majority of my life where I was not financially sound. And even to this day, my debt outweighs my savings by far because of law school. But at least now I can pay my bills. I've got a savings. I've got some investments and things like that. And so it allows me to feel a little bit more comfortable. And I think that there's a degree of not wanting to go back to that. And so, and I think also tied up in that is I would imagine that my associate attorney is still on her way out of that because she's behind me in our career and how long we've been practicing. And it took me the better part of my career to get to where I feel a little bit more stable. And, and I think with my paralegal, he's younger, so he's probably still in that world a little bit. And so I think a part of it is just my own sort of pain from earlier in life where finances and money was such an issue. And seeing my family struggle with that certainly is another thing that contributes to that. And wanting to help my staff avoid having to feel that way, I think is part of it. And then also too, just 
ensuring that my staff doesn't think that we have this law firm that limps along and can go away any other day because that confidence has to be there for them, for our clients too. And to the larger point of if we fail, I guess there's a little bit of a degree of maybe some of those lawyers that thought what we did was silly were were right. And not that I really believe that, but maybe that's a little bit in there too. There's just enough uncertainty, I think, in the ups and downs that it's easy to to poke at some of those anxieties so that that, that doesn't surprise me. So I think totally. I'm hearing, though, for you, you're talking about some of your past challenges and feelings about money. It sounds like, so tell me if I'm right on this, that, that you've at this point feel like, yeah, that's been an issue. I'm, I've got for me a plan, like I'm, I'm moving in the right direction and I feel like I'm headed the right way there. I've got it sorted out. It's just a matter of continuing along the path. Is that right? Yeah, totally. And I think that's why it's like the first thing that came to mind. I'm really lucky and I think fortunate that I've gotten myself to a place where super stressful client things aren't the top of mind stressful thing for me. And it's actually more, hey, I want to make sure my law firm survives and not necessarily for me. Like one of my goals when I started to make a little bit more money was I just want to be able to have a savings that's enough to pay all my bills for a year. And once you surpass that, at least for me, there's this sort of level of comfort and confidence and lack of stress around the financial aspects of things because you're okay, at least um, for a year if something happens. And so For me, like all of these stressors, and when I'm thinking about it laying in bed at night, it's because of my staff and my clients, less so than it is about me and my well-being. So does all of this and the the concern that you have for them related to your own journey and such, does this point you to anything you could or might like to do from the standpoint of how you support your staff and how you, you know, talk to your staff around this so that it is less of a problem for them, I'm wondering? That is a good question. What comes to mind is like financial literacy education, just so that they are more up to speed and can talk the language a little bit more. And and I definitely do include the associate attorney and minority partner in our CPA conversation so that she can get up to speed on that stuff. But that's a, I'm going to think on that one because I like that. There's probably more that I could be doing to help them help me with all of this. I think this is an example, Sam, of a space where I hear that you're concerned about it and it's something that really matters to you. And I think it's, again, this is your difference really showing up. I think a lot of companies would be like, that's their problem, not not my responsibility. But I hear that you (laughs) care about it and I hear that concern. And so it totally makes sense to me that it's the kind of thing you would want to be able to to speak to, which I think is is really cool. It's again, really it's it shows through so much how you're really trained to look out for and think about your employees and their well-being and making sure that they are indeed treated like humans who have human fears, human struggles and all those sorts of things, which I think is really cool. So Yeah, in a lot of ways I feel like our government and our education system doesn't do that for our people anymore and so they leave it up to the private sector and so got to step up. It's and it turns out it may be an interesting opportunity um, for you in a sense. It's there. There's an opportunity there, but it's. I think it's great that you're doing it. So one that, but two also. Thank you for for being you know for being really vulnerable about this financial thing. I think this is the kind of thing a lot of people just wouldn't be willing to to talk about on a podcast. But it I I think un, got into some interesting little things. So I appreciate you playing along there for me. Yeah, no, I think it's a really cool exercise too, and I think you create certainly a, a comfortable and safe space here on this podcast. And so thank you for creating that space. That's half the battle when you have a question or an exercise like that. No, I think that that's a good point. And, and thank, thank you. As we work on wrapping up here, what do you see is like next for Sam and for better on your journey to, to do law differently and to uh, continue helping to make the world a better place? 
Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that I've been thinking a lot about with these miracle mornings. Part of it is affirmations and visualizations. And I think part of what I'm, I'm visualizing and I would love to see for us is that I want to make sure that the law firm is as self-sustaining as possible, which not to say that it's automated or anything like that. It's going to be something where we just have systems in place that allow us to work remote and do other things as well. And so one of those is that Olivia that I keep mentioning, she's rolling out something called our Better HR subscription. And it's a monthly subscription that helps people with HR, not just the legal. And so, of course, we can help with that too. But that's going to be a cool thing that I think is really going to be helpful and something that's awesome for her that she's going to really see a lot of traction from and, and a lot of satisfaction out of. And then I think with that, we might try to roll out at some point some kind of like business mentorship, business coaching, because we do so much of that sort of inherently. The difficulty there is trying to figure out how to price and charge for that because I don't want to charge legal rates for that and, and all of that. But I think ultimately, as far as what's next for Sam, any listeners out there that hear this, and if you ever have an opportunity to plug me in any way, I would love to actually start doing some public speaking and some coaching. I think what I would really enjoy doing is I, I can work so much remote and, and so well remote, and I have a structure that allows me to do phone calls and all my meetings and all of my work on a schedule that would also allow for travel, talking, coaching. And so I would love to be able to travel around, coach businesses, coach people, and do speaking engagements. And, and really, not only just on the business aspect and the legal, of course, but social justice and social entrepreneurship is something that I'm so uniquely positioned to witness from our clients that I'd love to speak on that too. Lots of really cool stuff there. I have I I have some thoughts. I'll, I'll take that part off offline, but I've got some I've got some thoughts and ideas for you. I think there's some pretty cool stuff you could do with that. So Sam, for people who want to connect with you, what is the best way for them to find you and get in touch? Yeah. So all of our social is going to be at inbetterwetrust. Uh, well, inbetterwetrust.com for the website, but then all of our social is at inbetterwetrust. Uh, our YouTube channel, I believe, is just Better APC. And then anybody can always go to our website. There's actually a little circle on the bottom right-hand side of the website that's my face talking like you're hearing now. And if you click on that, you can type in under my face and actually email us directly. And that's another way to get in touch with us. And then me, myself, personally, my my Instagram handle is the Monster Maz with underscores between the words. And that's because I am Halloween obsessed and love all things Halloween. So that's where the Monster Maz comes from. There is sometimes me thinking about potentially like branching off into some type of Halloween haunted house consulting as a future thing for me, but that's another <laughs> conversation for another time. But that's a fun, that'd be a fun though, like side thing to do. I love that. That's great. Oh, um, yeah. And yeah, I definitely encourage everyone to go, even if you aren't necessarily looking for, for legal support, I just, I want to encourage anybody who has a small business or is trying to think about doing business differently. I want to encourage you to check out Sam's stuff because it is different. It is distinctly different. It is very human, but at the same time, it's very professional. And so I, I think there's a lot of lessons people could take if you're trying to figure out a way to do your business differently. And that's one of the things that when I uh, became aware of Sam, I was like, this guy is really cool. I got to talk to him. So Sam, I want to say one, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk today and for your openness and vulnerability. I know this is, you know, a, a thing that is not always super comfortable for people, but I really appreciate that you are very open and sharing about this. Cause I think it has given us a lot of really good, interesting stuff that I think will be really helpful to the folks who listen to this show who might be struggling on their journeys to be able to, to listen to themselves and then follow the path to find their kind of their right way, the way that you, I think have been doing. Yeah. Thank you. And, and certainly like, as far as just checking out our resources and stuff like that, one of our big ethos with our firm is there's a lot of people that are going to do it themselves. 
and that's totally fine. We'd rather you do it right if you do it yourself. And that's why a lot of that content we have is out there. And yeah, and thank you. I always say flattery will get you everywhere with me. And this has been a, a great way to start my Monday. And it's been very flattering and uplifting. And I appreciate all the kind words for sure. Absolutely. All right, Sam, I will talk to you soon and I enjoy the rest of your Monday. Yeah, thank you. You too. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can get show notes, information about my coaching services, or just send me a note at sensitiverebel.com. Until next time, keep moving forward.